everyone welcome to saltier politics we have an independence day edition we're going to start talking about the debates but following that we have a fantastic interview with author jennifer ryan who wrote a brand new novel called the spies of shilling lane and it is about espionage during world war ii in london and it's great for a long commute wherever you're traveling this july 4th weekend and also good beach read absolutely if you're hanging out on the beach and you need a good book to read that has nothing whatsoever to do with um, the nightmare of what's going on today in our political world. Right. It, <laughs> it kind of puts things in perspective. It could be worse. We could be being blitzed. Right. Um, but you can have a fantastic mental escape. That's true. But, uh, Julie, I guess let's start with the debates. What'd you think? Did you watch both of them? I watched both of them. Uh, debate one, who did you think our winners were? So debate one, um, I didn't think there were any clear-cut winners. I thought there was a clear-cut loser. Um, and Does I'm gonna, it start and with Beto? It starts with Beto and ends with O'Rourke. Um, and I'll tell you why. I'm going to put aside all the also-ran candidates who are running um, because either they want to always promise themselves they'd run for president or they're looking for a cable news contributorship or, 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 or something or so speaking mean, feeds. We won't be doing a deep dive into Marianne Williamson. Well, Marianne Williamson was the second debate. We'll get to her in a second. <laughs> right. um, but I, I do think what's interesting to me is, look, I think Elizabeth Warren um, was very good. She was excellent, actually. But she's got to work on her body language to some extent. Uh, just, I, and I can't quite pinpoint what it is, but she's she's... She's got to work on that a little bit. I thought Cory Booker was was pretty good, um, and others disagreed for some reason. I, I'm biased, as I said. I've prepped Cory Booker for two of his Senate debates, so I might be a little biased in, in knowing how how Cory preps for debates, what he's trying to get across. I thought he stuck the landing a couple of times very well, um, but Beto O'Rourke, who you know was sort of the the, the great hope of the last election cycle. And I can't tell if it's because Beto O'Rourke was really that awesome or whether because he ran against Ted Cruz and everybody hates Ted Cruz. And when I mean everybody, I mean literally people on both sides of the aisle can't stand Ted Cruz. But I didn't see this, this Beto O'Rourke that everybody kept talking about, this, this Kennedy-esque brilliant um, oh. order. I don't know. Did you, did you notice anything no. about him that I missed? Well, during the first debate, I remember Mark Schwartz, our CBS uh, national desk editor. Yes. I texted him and I said, Beto looked like a chump. And Mark responded, I told you, I watched him debate Cruz and he was disappointing. So I can't say I'm shocked. And I wrote, where did all the excitement for him go? Just exactly what we were talking about. Just better candidates or did he poorly capitalize on momentum? He said, Mark goes, LOL, um, he was going against one of the most hated people in the country, and when he had one viral moment where he was, like, kneeling is good. Anyone with an ounce of personality who runs against Cruz will become a hero to many. But once he, one, lost, and two, tried to go to a bigger stage with fellow libs and leftists, he never stood a chance. I think that's right, I guess. I mean, I, I, I'd never seen him debate before. Um, I have plenty of friends here in New York who love him, who know him, who support him. And I actually reached out to one of them and said, what am I missing? Am I missing something? She said, oh, just give it time, give it time. But, you know, there, there really is no time. Especially in this kind of news cycle. Yeah, there's, there's no time. So Beto, I guess if he makes the next round of debates, it's, it's do or die for him because I don't see any enthusiasm for him whatsoever. Um, the second debate I thought was fantastic. The first debate, by the way, towards the end, I was kind of fading. 
The second debate I thought was fantastic and hands down, and I mean hands down, Kamala Harris was, she's like my girl. I literally, I think I tweeted this. I got the feels for her. Like I suddenly became a huge Kamala Harris accolade. She was great. She took it to Biden and to others when she needed to in a respectful way. She, her body language was incredible and in debates, I hate to say this, I know people don't like it, but body language is so critical in debates um, in a way that I thought Elizabeth Warren's wasn't that good. Hers was fantastic. She was just so unbelievably strong and good. And when you think about who can take it to Donald Trump, it's her. And then, of course, inevitably, I tweet that out, and the usual misogynists on Twitter start talking about, well, you know, she was the start saying words about her and her sexual history that I, wouldn't, I find it hilarious from Trump supporters are actually criticizing somebody else's sexual history. Um, but it doesn't really matter. What matters to me is she was strong. She was effective. She was presidential. I mean, I could see her, and she was resolute, and I like that, and there was nothing that threw her. Um, I thought she was great. Um, I thought Buttigieg was very good, very risky move to say that he couldn't fix it when they were talking about diversifying the, the, the department. What'd I you think of that? that? I freaking loved it. So he matter-of-factly took responsibility for the South Bend police tensions. And I thought that is the difference and that is the authenticity that resonates. I loved Biden it. Biden doesn't do that. A lot of the older politicians don't do that. But taking... And now do you see he kind of ended the conversation. People didn't... People aren't replaying him trying to get around it or weasel around it. It, it kind of... He said it, Swalwell kind of got on him, but he was outshone. Yeah, what I thought was interesting was Biden has this thing. Biden does not apologize. Donald Trump does not apologize. And there is something to be said for saying, look, if I apologize, I'm giving my opponents an opening. It's a risky move by, by Mayor Pete because it could go one of two ways, but I thought it was a great move on his part to do it. Um, I see a Harris boot, ed ed, boot ed edge uh, ticket. I don't know about that. Yeah, that's um, too much for... I don't know. Look, I mean, After how, that, I how great would it be in some ways to have an African-American um, gay ticket? <laughs> Except that I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that... I, I, I don't know. I think they, they have to... The, the way these tickets get determined is obviously they, they poll extensively and they see what the principle is missing and what could add. I mean, the reason that Obama picked Biden was because Biden could talk to those white working class voters that Obama at the time could not. Um, same thing with Hillary um, when she picked her vice presidential candidate. Um, so we'll see. I mean, we'll see what whoever the nominee is, what they're lacking and what they think a vice president can deliver for them. Um, Biden, I thought, you know, I, and, and let me preface by saying I, lo I have loved Joe Biden for 30 years. I'm from New Jersey. We always considered him the third senator from New Jersey. He probably spent more time in New Jersey as a senator than he did in Delaware um, since they're adjacent. He, he really, I know him. Um, I've been around him a hundred billion times, not to mention when I worked in the Senate, but really more when I did a lot of political work in New Jersey, he was always around, always and I love Joe Biden. I love the authenticity of Joe Biden because what you see is what you get in private. Like he is exactly the way he is. But I looked at Joe Biden this time around and it breaks my heart because if Biden had run four years ago, I would have been 
team Biden. I've always said that if Biden had been the nominee instead of Hillary, I might have quit my job <laughs> and, and just gone to work for him permanently. permanently. But he came across as old, and I don't mean old physically. I mean, like time had passed him by, the moment it had passed him by. Right. And I worry that that's the case. I mean, that Joe Biden... Um, He's living too much in, in what the, was good. And in, in so much of the conversation now is focused on it wasn't that good for people, well, as Kamala I mean, Harris called him out for. I mean, we're having conversations about busing. And, you know, I went to college in Boston, and Boston was one of the hubs of the busing controversy. And I think my freshman or sophomore year, my, my professor, one of my, one of my professors was like the expert on busing. So we spent the entire semester talking about busing, and believe me, that is way too long to talk about the subject. But that was 25 years ago. And that was already talking about something that had happened in the 70s, and this was the early 90s. So, I mean, back then we were studying it as a historical fact. And now we're talking about busing again. I mean, something that happened 45 years ago. Uh, a little tired, and I, and I, and I don't want to keep having those discussions. And so reluctantly, although I would 100% support Joe Biden if he were the nominee and, and give my right arm to see him be elected. I think he would be a great president, but I just don't know if he's the one this year. Um, I had just a quick question for you, Julie, about the first debate when Elizabeth Warren said she was in favor of getting rid of private insurance, saying health insurance companies are too focused on their bottom line. Don't like it. Well, I read don't do that it. in the general election that hurts the people running on the ticket for the Democratic yeah. ticket for Congress. And that that concerned me and I wanted to get your input on that because I mean for the way left she's she's trying to go for Bernie supporters by get by saying that but don't do it okay. the vast majority of Americans I think something like 84 86 percent like their insurance they like it because they get it through their employer and they don't have to deal with the insurance companies there are people in their large corporations that deal with it for them I hate my insurance by the way because I have to deal with it myself because I run a small company um but most people do like it and I actually like Mayor Pete's Medicare for all who want it approach, which is that if you prefer to get a Medicare, that's great. I like the public option. I mean, that's exactly what he's kind of endorsing. And, and I'm sorry that the public option was something that was killed when Obamacare was first presented because the public option was a great idea, which is essentially Medicare for those who want it. Um, I wish people would stop talking about Medicare for all because it's conceptually a great idea, but people really... Don't, the majority of people don't want to screw around with their health care. And so I wish people would stop talking about it. It's really not helpful in a general election. And I'm hoping that, you know, I mean, Bernie, you're never going to get Bernie off, off of that. But Bernie aside, um, it's concerning to me if Elizabeth Warren is the nominee, what they're going to do with that. On the other hand, you're running against some wackadoodle who wants to get rid of Obamacare altogether, which is an incredibly popular program, which would bring back discrimination against pre-existing conditions and all sorts of bad things that people um, oppose. So, you know, it's not like Donald Trump is not completely out of the mainstream on healthcare either. So right. we'll see. We'll see. Entertaining debates. I had fun, especially the second one, watching it. The second one was great. The first one I thought was a little sleepy. You know, actually, the first one... Julian Castro, who I never really paid much attention to, I thought he did a great job. 
he called out O'Rourke especially too. Yeah, and, well, they hated But the contrast them. against them was great. And in Castro got into the nitty gritty on immigration, and he called out O'Rourke with yeah. that. And yeah. I thought that was very astute. I agree. Um, I think he did to O'Rourke what Chris Christie did to little Marco, Marco Rubio, in one of the debates. He kind of diminished him to get him out of it. Clearly, they're competing for the same lane. Um, so that's fine. I don't, how did you feel about the Spanish? I thought it was a little condescending. I did too. No, completely unnecessary and just inauthentic at the moment, especially when O'Rourke did it and he started into it. I'm like, know your audience, buddy. This, this was not the platform. I mean, and and yes, you had, I think Univision was one of the sponsors of the debate and, um, um, Diaz Ballard obviously was, was one of the anchors, I, I believe from Univision or Telemundo. I can't remember which one. I think it's Univision, but, um, I get it, but unless you're doing it, it's just, I feel it it's a little... It didn't I, read. It was yeah, inauthentic. I, yeah, I felt a little, a little condescending. It's just enough already. It's like, okay, great. You guys all took Spanish 101. Congratulations to you, but it's not, you know... Yeah. Let's move on. Right. Can I tell you about something I'm so not salty about, I'm really proud of and happy about? So well, please tell me, because you did mention Chris Christie. I did mention Chris Christie. So um, remember Bridgegate? Oh, oh yes. From, from back in the day? Um, to, to recap, Bridgegate, um, which I think most people know about time for some traffic problems in Fort Lee, um, people who worked for the governor, for governor Christie at the time, um, one of whom, a woman named Bridget Kelly was his deputy chief of staff. The two other people who, um, one pled guilty, David Wildstein, the other was convicted at trial along with Bridget Kelly, Bill Baroni worked um, for the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which controls the George Washington Bridge. Um, David Wellstein, a good friend of mine, pled to um, being the quote-unquote mastermind of this, and Bridget Kelly and Bill Baroni went to trial and were found guilty of essentially misappropriating public funds to, to shut down the George Washington Bridge, I suppose in exchange for political retaliation for one of Chris Christie's enemies. I'm going to put aside the fact that I think it's disgraceful that the government only went after the low-hanging fruit on this and did not really try to make a case against people higher up who may have been responsible for this. But the Supreme Court, in what is an absolutely stunning decision on Friday, decided to grant certiorari, so cert, to their appeal, which means that they're going to hear the appeal for Bridget Kelly and Bill Baroni um, which presumably means that the Supreme Court, I don't think, would take this case if they were not going to overturn it. In the meantime, Bridget Kelly was about to start serving her sentence. She just got bail pending appeal to the Supreme Court. Bill Baroni um, was already serving his sentence, um, and I, I cannot stress to you what a dear friend he is, really more like a brother to me than a friend, um, he and I were emailing with each other virtually every day when he was in prison. And uh, he is was supposed to serve a 13-month sentence. He just started serving in April. And then thanks to the stunning Supreme Court reversal, he is, uh, I think, from what, I, um, what he told me, walking out of prison today or tomorrow, um, pending appeal to the Supreme Court and coming home back to New York. And... Um, I cannot tell you how absolutely thrilled I am about this and how I feel finally justice has been served. These people should never have gone to prison for this. 
It was a dumb stunt. It was an immature stunt. Um, Bill is an attorney. If they wanted to disbar Bill for, for, for this, they should have. If they wanted to have Bridget and Bill serve community service or um, pay a large fine, they should have done that. If they wanted to ban them from public service for life, they should have done that. But Bridget Kelly, who I don't know as well, is the mother of four children. And to take a mother away from her four children and put her behind bars for something that is such a dumb stunt where nobody really got hurt. It was traffic and it was an obscene stunt. It was dumb. But the fact that they were in prison, um, that Bill was in prison for this, is just completely insane to me. Um, Bill, before he went to the Port Authority, was an incredibly prominent Republican state senator, um, was considered a potential statewide candidate for the Republican Party. Um, people have thought of him as a future senator or future governor. Um, his, his, his life is basically destroyed. His career is basically destroyed. But at least the Supreme Court um, provided a modicum of justice. I don't know who the four members were who, who decided to grant cert on this, whether it was four or more. Um, in fact, I suspect a lot of them were the conservative uh, justices because so this is something Scalia, actually Justice Scalia started about really making sure that you don't prosecute public political crimes to the extent that the government sometimes does. So thank you, SCOTUS. Thank you, Supreme Court. I never thought I'd say that. Right. As a liberal, um, I'm thrilled my friend is coming home. I'm thrilled that I hope for Bridget Kelly and for him this national nightmare is over. And um, I, I sincerely hope that the court agrees with me and with a lot of other people um, that there was no crime here. It was a dumb, immature stunt, but I'm still hard-pressed to find what the crime here is. And I think the court is going to ultimately, they, if they decided to grant cert on this, I think the court probably will agree that there really was no crime here. And hopefully Bridget and Bill can start getting their life back together. And so I... Had a fantastic weekend. I found out about this news on Friday, and I just cannot be more thrilled about about them and what's going on. So that that's my not salty. That is my whatever the opposite sugary, ecstatic. You know um, I believe we need a lot of some more sugar. Yeah, uh, this this is just fantastic news. So I am incredibly happy. And anybody listening for to this, obviously, if you have questions about this, tweet me. But um, I anticipate that I will be um, celebrating with Bill Baroni today, tomorrow, whenever he comes home, and I cannot wait. Awesome. I say we get into the book, and then we'll finish up with what we're salty about. Yep. So everybody enjoy this wonderful conversation with Jennifer Ryan. Author Jennifer Ryan, welcome to our Salty Politics podcast. I previously interviewed Jennifer on her excellent first book, Chilbury Ladies Choir, and now she's joining Salty Politics to talk about her brand new book of fiction, Spies of Schilling Lane, that takes place in London during World War II. Welcome. That's great. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us about the book. So the book is called The Spies of Schilling Lane, and it's set in... Um, in London in the Second World War and it's set in 1941 so the London Blitz is going on and what happens in the London Blitz is um, German planes are coming over virtually every single night and dropping bombs on London it was horrific for the civilians and um, a woman um, who's sort of middle-aged and kind of quite bossy actually she um, comes to London to find her daughter just just to see her daughter 
And she lives in the countryside, so she's not really aware of the Blitz going on very much. So she comes and she witnesses it firsthand. And then she realises that her daughter is missing. And so really the rest of the book is her trying to find her daughter and it turns out that her daughter is a spy. So she unwittingly heads, he, um, heads into the um, underground world of espionage in, in London. But there's also tales of classism and the way things were set up, I guess, pre-war in Britain was certainly different than it is today, right? It was very much so. And um, I really wanted to look at the differences between generations. Um, And so the mother really comes from much more of a Victorian era that was very class-based and it was all about stiff upper lip and... um, uh, the class that you were born, brought into and the class that you showed on your being, you know, your, your, the way you dressed, the way you acted, etc., etc., um, very much dictated how other people would treat you in return and what kind of, um, what kind of a lifestyle you were expected to, to have and how much power you would have within the, the, um, your life. Whereas her daughter, Betty grew up in a, in, in a very different era, and now with the Second World War, um, she was given a lot more opportunities, in it, and it, it, the, the country was already becoming much more of a meritocracy, in which case there were much more opportunities for not only people, middle class or working class people, but uh, women particularly. When you described her living space, Miss, am I saying this right, Miss Braithwaite? Mrs. Braithwaite, yeah. Braithwaite. Mm. Considered one's living space a canvas on which to display one's success, style, and breeding. I found that interesting because I think today people use their Instagram and Facebook and different social media to kind of express that. Just made me think of that. But And living space doesn't have much to do with the reality of what you see on Instagram. Right. <laughs> As it would back then, right? Yeah, I think that's a really good, um, insightful you know, um, idea actually is that these days it is, it, it, it is, it's sort of turning that way that your status is um, exemplified by what you can parade in front of the world on, on Instagram. What inspired, who inspired you to write this? I mean, was this a Daphne du Maurier um, or, or British authors in the interwar period who wrote about these kinds of issues um, or others who inspired you? No, I was directly inspired by a woman, an old lady that I interviewed for the Chilbury Ladies' Choir. Um, whilst I was researching that book, I went um, over to, in- to Britain and I interviewed a certain amount of old ladies in old, la- you know, old people's homes and things like that, and um, in care homes. And there was this wonderful old lady and she was, a bit, she was very twinkly-eyed and, you know, and she was great fun anyway. And she said to me, that she had got a job. I, I was particularly interested in women's experiences in the Second World War and what suddenly, what opportunities, work opportunities were available to them. And, um, and she said that, you know, during the war she worked for MI5, which is a big espionage. Right. Um, and it grew hugely during the Second World War and they really did take on a number of women. But most of the women were taken on in secretarial posts that before the war would have been taken, you would have been done by men. Um, but but also there were also women who were, um, the term is plucked out of the typing pool um, in order to go and uh, in, do infiltration missions. 
And she refused to tell me what she did for MI5. Still, she's, all these years did, later. I know, I was shaking her. So <laughs> 70 years later, I, I promise I'm not going to tell anyone, you know. And, um, but she wouldn't tell me. And, but there was this twinkle in her eye and she kept grinning and laughing. And I thought, she's a spy. She was a spy. And so I kept saying, asking her very pertinent questions and she wouldn't tell me a thing. That's great. So, but my imagination went wild at that point. And I thought, oh my goodness, what must it have felt like? You know, women were not um, able to really have many job options at all until the Second World War and suddenly being plunged into the situation where not only was she given, you know, this spy, you know, working in this huge spy um, organization, but also being sort of put into an infiltration situation. So it's actually very funny is that um, at at the beginning of the war, they really felt that women, you know, the old boys of the um, espionage organizations really thought no women should not be part of MI5 or or espionage at all because now they said that they they didn't have the nerves for it but secondly they weren't dubious enough uh, they weren't devious enough (laughs) they met women (laughs) (laughs) there's one thing we're good at it's being devious I think (laughs) oh my gosh (laughs) and being spies all the slews that my friends have when they're looking up different uh, significant others when they've just met somebody, I'm telling you. Yeah. Just through that. <laughs> um, but actually, to goes right into another line in your book um, when Miss Braithwaite talks about, when I was growing up, the only woman who had a job and was married was the queen. Our success which was judged by the men we married in the social circle we found ourselves in afterward. My mother bar- married beneath her and Aunt Augusta never let her forget it. So really, again, the idea of a woman's role and how her status was defined by the man she was with. Yeah, no, very much so. I'm actually reading another book that I'm doing for research at the moment about um, Debs, um, debutantes, um, uh, and and they, they're talking about before the Second World War how they would not, if you were deemed intelligent, that, I mean, you, you were likely to fail to get a husband. That was the kiss of death on any woman. Um, was to be deemed intelligent and they weren't educated at all because of course if you were educated it it gave it could be misread as this woman needs to go out and find a job which is not her raison d'etre her raison d'etre is to find the right kind of man um, so but yeah that's I'm, that's a great bit to to pull out once again it's like com- contrasting I, I you know, the two different generations. So Mrs. Braithwaite is very much of that generation where the queen, and when, the queen that she's talking about is Queen Victoria, um, who was a mother and a, and a wife and, and had a job. But really, I mean, unless you were an, an incredibly poor person in, in the lower classes, you, you would be expected to give up any job that you had when you got married. And let's let's talk about. I mean, at least set the scene for what was happening in London in 1941. As you said, the Blitz was happening. Um, they had just declared war, obviously in 1939. Things were kind of calm, and I think the British didn't really assume anything was going to happen for the first few months. Right, it was the fake war, whatever it was called. But um, and then suddenly the Blitz happened. Uh, but more than that, it seemed, and you would know about this being British, but it seems that no family was unaffected by the war. Nobody was spared, no matter where you lived. I mean, a brother or a husband 
or a daughter, somebody died in the course of World War II for people on the continent, and I think people in this country um, clearly had lost uh, family members as well, but the war did not come to us in the same way, <coughs> excuse me, that it came to the British. Um, yeah, no, very much so. The, um, uh, I, I find it horrific to think about that, you know, you wake up in the morning, and I think this, this makes the, the era so compelling as a writer, as an author, because, you know, you've got a, a large population of people in London, and they're waking up every morning, and they're going to work, and they don't know whether they're going to be coming back home that night, whether they'll make it through the night, uh, th through the day without getting bombed, because there were an awful lot of daytime raids as well, although most of them were in the evening. And you just got used to this crazy lifestyle where you would go and sleep in an underground shelter of some description. Not everyone did it, actually. Quite often people actually just stayed in their, ha their, their homes. Particularly, I think Betty actually says it in here, particularly people with more dangerous jobs they just don't bother. They just sort of think, well, my job is so dangerous anyway that I'm just going to not bother going <laughs> into an underground <laughs> shelter or something. But um, uh, there, there definitely was this kind of feeling that you, you sleep in an underground shelter, you wake up in the morning, you take your hair comb out of your bag, you give your hair a quick comb, you take out your lipstick that you would have taken everywhere with you, put, put a bit of lipstick on and then gone off to work. And that, that was what people's expectations of their day-to-day -day really changed. And, um, and I think it really, you know, the, the having death so close. Um, I mean, I personally, I just think it must have been incredibly frightening. Um, I mean, you read these accounts, but just to stop and think that you can walk down a street, that your own street that you've lived on for years and years, and you can hear, you know, this whistling through the sky or the, the sound of the plane and bombs are going to come down on you. I, I, I just find it terrifically exciting. Uh, um, it uh, is. And, yeah, frightening. And, and what's fascinating is the Germans knew what they were doing. Um, as I recall, um, although not from personal experience, they, they decided to bomb the East End, which was the poorer part of London at the time, now a very trendy part of London because they wanted a class revolution, right? They wanted the, the lower classes, as they called it, to rise up against the monarchy, to rise up against the prime minister, to rise up against parliament. And so the people who really suffered, um, as I think your book describes in some detail too, is, is there were people who really, the, the poor classes, the people who had the least to lose were the people that lost the most. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was, you know, the middle class kind of went as well. Right. Um, uh, it's quite interesting because by the second round of bombs that happened in 1944 and 1945, there were these huge missiles that were launched from the continent. It's kind of like the, the forerunner to the cruise missiles were basically raining down on London. And, um, and the British, there was a, some, a couple of spies who um, were double agents, and they did a really great job of convincing the Nazis that they had got the locations right for the bombing when actually they hadn't. They were actually under. So poor old Southeast London got absolutely mm -hmm. obliterated because they thought that they were bombing central London when they actually weren't. It was, I mean, it was an incredibly... Um, I, I love reading about espionage during the Second World War because it, it was kind of in its, 
in its early days and anything went. I mean, you know, there, there really was this feeling, if we can get away with this and people with these brilliant ideas, oh, let's try this and let's see, let's see how this works. And, and I think there's a couple of instances of that in the book um, of, of things like that where, where, you know, you've got infiltration going on. So they, they worked out that women were very good at infiltration. And the main reason why that was was because no one would suspect a woman because women were just not involved. Previous to this, women were not involved in espionage at all. And um, it really was very much deemed a man's job. But particularly the Germans, because the Germans had this ethos that the woman was supposed to be staying at home and having a family and everything. So in fact, it was, it was, it was almost easier to fool the Nazis because of their own ethos um, uh, kind of just blinded them to what a woman was actually capable of. One of the characters who really stuck out to me, who I absolutely hated, was Anthony Metcalf. And anyway, he applied to be a codebreaker, but he didn't get in. And when he didn't, now he joins the Nazis in the fascist party. And and it was it just kind of struck me about when men get rejected. It's just all so petty, and it reminded me of Hitler, who, rejection, and then Trump, when he was rejected, um, on so many levels, and even at the correspondence dinner, and just that whole kind of, where it's like, of course they would want me, I could have totally done it, but I didn't, so now I'm joining the other side. I just thought that character was so hateful, but so spot on to so many of these men full of hubris. Yeah, no, I'm really glad that you brought that up, because... Um, uh, a lot of that really did happen. There was an awful lot of pride in being asked to join these, these, um, particularly the code breakers and everything. And someone like Anthony would have definitely have, have felt slighted by, by not going in. And yeah, so he felt like a little Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about women. Um, World War Two really did change everything for women, didn't it? And it society did. here as well, but really in Britain, which had a, a much larger gap between what women were doing before the war and after the war, it feels. I think, I think, that's, I think that's very true, but it also depends what class you were. Um, the class system in the UK has always been very segmented, um, and obviously it's not as strong as it, as it used to be. Um, but at that, during that time, it, it really was. And, um, but... The, but, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people or there's some people that argue that after the war, the men came home, the women had to give up their fancy jobs that they had and they had to go back to being shopkeepers and, you know, teachers and things like that. And that is true. But that underlying message that women can do a man's job never went away after that. And so from then onwards, you did have a certain amount of women who did keep doing the, the the jobs that they did during the war um and and then also in the 1950s when you start to get a change in manufacturing for instance and a change in the way that business is done you get an awful lot of women stepping in to become secretaries and things things like that which is something that they wouldn't have been doing prior to the second world war um, and of course, they they remained in espionage very definitely. They they became a, a, a bigger and bigger part of espionage. 
What about the woman you interviewed? Did you get the sense that she went back to her home and to her husband and to her family after she... She did. She did. She was one of the ones... She was one of the ones who did. She said after the war, she, you know, it was kind of like a small, she said sometimes it just feels like a small dream that happened to her. And then she kind of like had to step back and she got married and, you know, had kids and everything. And I said, oh, and now she's got grandkids. And I said to her, oh, do you know, what, what do you think your grandchildren would say if they knew what you did during the war? And she said, well, she said with a little laugh, she said, well, I think they'd be quite surprised. <laughs> That's so interesting that she didn't... It, what a loss that she didn't write it down or somehow share it with her grandchildren. Who I would have loved to have probably told their own children about it. I mean, I, I had grandparents who were in the ward. They did not talk about it much at all. Um, and I regret, now that they're gone, that I didn't get more out of them. But I think that generation just really has a very hard time patting themselves on the back or, or acknowledging their own heroism. Um, in ways that I think future generations, including ours, probably does not. Um, but it is a loss. I think, so with my grandmother, um, my grandmother was, at the Chilbury Ladies' Choir, my previous book, was based on my grandmother's stories about the Second World War. And it was quite interesting when I bought the book out and I was telling people about this because a lot of people said, I've, I've never been able to talk to my my grandparents about this and how was it that you had that forethought to kind of ask her questions but actually it was a more um it was a more of a situational kind of thing my my mother um went abroad for a few years and so we were sort of everyone else had left the area <laughs> so it's just me and my grandmother and so we used to get together on a Sunday and you know I suppose just I was interested and she was interested in talking about it. And so I, I would just ask her all these stories about her past and where she met her husband and all about the war. And she loved talking about the war. It was a really exciting time for her. I mean, she said that it was the best time of her life. And this was, this was something that was echoed very much by the other women that I interviewed, the other old ladies that I interviewed, you know, unless they had had some devastating situation themselves. Um, they, you know, most of them just said it was just an amazing time that they had. It, it really was um, just a, a huge change around, you know, mostly it was the freedom and there was a lot of parties and, you know, um, they were allowed to live on their own. Suddenly they were part of a, something bigger than themselves. I kind of get very much the feeling that before the Second World War, women were living very lonely lives in a lot of ways. Um, I read the, the, um, the journal of a woman, uh, a middle-aged woman called Nella Last, and I found it just incredibly moving how at the beginning of the book, which kind of starts just as the war is starting, she's getting over a bit of a nervous breakdown, and her husband is very controlling, but he's very, um, uh, he doesn't socialize very much. So he doesn't like her going out and they don't ever go out, socialize together. And um, so she lives this incredibly lonely life where she's at home and she has to make him, he works locally, so she has to make him breakfast. Then she goes to the shop, comes home, makes him lunch. It's kind of very, and he comes home for lunch. And then she has a, little lie down in the afternoon and she has, has a bit of an addiction to aspirin because um, she has headaches and you know and everything anyway she starts volunteering for work with the women's voluntary service 
and she starts, uh, she heads up a mobile canteen, which is um, a van that goes around and um, makes, they make tea and snacks for either troops who are being moved from one part to another or people helping with bit building clearance after the bombs, etc., etc. And she, um, uh, she becomes incredibly useful to the war effort. She does an awful lot of other things as well, like she'll go around to women who have been bereaved in the afternoon. She'll have like a rota of which ones she'll go around and she'll take something to eat and she'll sit down and talk to them and just kind of give them a company and um, support, really. And then comes the day when she doesn't, she's so busy with the canteen and all her other work that she doesn't make it home for lunchtime to make her husband's lunch. And so she makes it for him in the morning and leaves it on the sideboard in the kitchen. And he is, and, and you're just behind her all the way. You're just, yes, go on, do it. <laughs> and, um, and he is really un upset with her because of that. But she's there going, I told him I've got work to do. This is very important work. But you see, this is it, is that the war kind of enabled women to kind of have more of a life than a life outside of the home, really, and, and, and a bigger raison d'etre. You know, they, it was more than just themselves. And um, anyway, this kind of went on, and she just kind of went from strength to strength. And at, at the end of the book, at the end of the war, she says that she... Um, she is never going to let any man control her ever again, including her husband. And um, I, 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 just, I, I just found it so... It really resonated with me how the war was instrumental to giving women an awful lot more freedom and an awful lot more power. They were needed, you see. Suddenly the work that they did was very necessary. And the voluntary work, the factory work, the espionage work, any work that they did suddenly became incredibly valuable to the country. And because they were valuable, they then got a voice. They got more power. What motivated you to write about this period? Is it because of your grandmother? or is It, it was, yeah. It was my grandmother. So uh, the Chilbury Ladies' Choir was very much... But I think war is... Um, uh, there was a sociologist um, about a hundred years ago says uh, and kind of came out and said that war is the bigger instigator of social change, uh, the most catastrophic social change that you can have. And I just wanted to really delve into that and to look at how it affected women in particular. Well... First of all, cheers to that story and cheers to everybody here. We're having gin and tonics in honor of Jennifer um, in your book. So cheers for everybody. Cheers. This is why cheers. you might have heard me choking a few minutes ago. <laughs> it's a gin and tonic. Because <laughs> it's been a long time since I've gin and tonics. Cheers. Um, but one of the huge things in this book is the relationship between the, the mom and the daughter. Aunt Betty, the daughter, who is a spy. But one of the best scenes in the book for me was when... Both of them were captured. They were tied up and they were sitting down and getting getting out of the situation. But the mom was asking the daughter about their relationship, being like, I really should have been better. I'm so sorry. But just in the most tense of times, it went right back down to like their issues. And I feel like that is just so spot on today with so many mother-daughter relationships where it's like... You know, you could just see a meteor coming and the mom be like, why did you talk to me like that earlier today? 
And it just, I just thought you captured just the ethos of that whole situation and the little nuances of mom-daughter relationships. Was this inspired by your relationship with your mom or just in general or with your kids? Um, yeah, I, th- I think both of those things. But I think most of all, um, I'm very much a writer that lets the characters write their own um, part, you know, take, take, take the lead in, in this. And... and um, and and very much, I mean, you know, Mrs. Braithwaite would, they're both very strong characters, but in very, very different ways. And, you know, it was very obvious that they were going to clash a little bit when they first met as well, because Betty particularly has become even more stronger. Um, and I, I just, um, yeah, I, to me, it it suddenly struck me that this would not go as swimmingly as Mrs. Braithwaite thought that it would. (laughs) Take us through your writing process, because that's fascinating um, that you said that characters tell their own story. Do you have a general sense when you sit down to write as to how the story's going to go, or do the characters become more fleshed out? And do they surprise you as you start to write? They do, but I do have a general idea of... I have a series of ideas of what could happen. Um... And, you know, generally some of the messages that might come out or, or whatever. But it, the characters do definitely take over. I have to say that there's a bit of a twist in, in towards the end of this book that I did not see coming. And it was only when I was writing it and I suddenly thought, no, that's not what this person would have done. And I ended up having to just go with what the per- that person would have done under those circumstances and it it presents a little bit of a twist at the end are you a writer or are you a rewriter in the sense that you'll write the first draft and then you'll go back and you'll say oh wait no this isn't exactly how it's going to go or do you do that in the moment as you're writing your initial story so i'm a um i'm a book editor i'm a non-fiction book editor before i became um an author so I love editing. So for me, the first draft is always just the first draft. Um, but that said, I mean, I think a lot of the very good moments come out of that, particularly that sort of moment when you're just letting the character go into free fall and you're just picking up on that, you know. Because I, I think it's very important that that's really how you get a story that's very believable and characters that really work well is by letting them act in the way that they they that they they are, um, and just following them and 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 everything. And I think, um, yeah. But but the, uh, moments like that can also come out of editing as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and just another just part of Miss Braithwaite that I loved when she was waiting, I believe, for the train. Um, and Mr. Norris was kind of being like, just chill, it's going to get here. She, she looked back at him and said, anyone who waits patiently while situations grow beyond their control is completely idiotic. It's tantamount to letting the world trample all over you. You've also captured all New Yorkers in that, <laughs> who will, will not wait. <laughs> like, it's like, there's a, we need to make it happen right now. We need to make this train get here. It's like there is no chill, so I thought that was really, <laughs> really fun. I love the these two characters. There's a lot of comedy between them because the, their view of the world is so almost opposite or kind of just juxtaposed, really, to each other's. And it, it brings up these wonderful comedy moments between them where Mr. Norris is 
being all thoughtful and considered and careful and Mrs. Braithwaite is just bombarding through everywhere without any thought in the world and it's it's just it's sometimes it's it's wonderful to well, I contrast them when you so Miss Braithwaite is clearly the main character in this but uh, writing kind of the supporting character of Mr. Norris I thought it was a great way also to write a supporting character who's who's not one-dimensional I feel like when so many women are the supporting characters or fault you know supporting the primary character they're just one-dimensional but he's not like the bumbling idiot who once in a while has a moment of greatness he's he's growing he's learning from that character so I thought that was really great that he wasn't just I feel like that happens a lot when a women's a secondary character I think you're completely right I really um I think that there's it is changing though I think particularly in movies um there is a change towards making women more of a kind of romantic sidekick who doesn't doesn't really have a strong personality, um, and I, but I I think it is I think there's a growing movement towards making them a little bit more nuanced and you know feisty really. Right. Yeah. Tell us about the process if uh, if you're a woman who is very compelled to tell a story, a fiction story, a nonfiction story. In your case, a fiction story. Um, the process for seeing it through to publication and to success. Because I think so many people, and especially so many women, are full of ideas and are full of stories that they want to tell but don't know where to begin and don't know how to draw it to its conclusion. So what advice would you give people listening who might feel that they have something to share? How do they get a book in print? Do they write the book? Do they have to get an agent? What is the best way to get this done for women who don't know where else to begin? Well, my number one piece of advice to anyone it sounds really simple, but that is finish, finish the thing that you're working on. And the reason why I say that is because I've got about seven <laughs> books of impartial states that I've written in the past, and I've just never really seen one through to complete completion, if you see what I mean. And um, and I think that that's what always held me back in the past is that I'll sort of write, 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 and then I'll come across a problem. And then I'll think, oh, I've got this other idea as well. Oh, I wonder if that's a better idea. And so then I jump to another idea. And then I start getting that going as well. And then I jump to another idea. So the problem was, was I was never actually seeing anything through. And I decided with Chilbury that I was just going to stay with it regardless. And I didn't really care what happened to it. I was just going to stay with it and keep, keep at it and everything. And I think... That that's really, I think that that's that's a really important first step. You have to have a product, and it has to be a polished product, you know, um, that's been really well edited and and well thought through. Really, um, you need to know your market very much for um, fiction. I think it's very competitive these days, and it's very business driven because of the way that the publishing has. Be- it just had to become more business orientated in the last couple of decades with the internet and everything. So you you really have to bear in mind who's going to buy this book um, and what's you know why 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 are they going to want to read it, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Is there a sense of vulnerability that you feel as an author where you're it's almost like putting your child on stage? having people judge it and it must be a terrifying feeling that that people don't appreciate who haven't written that you're working on something that sprouts really from your imagination and you're really putting all of yourself into this book 
and putting yourself out there, waiting to be judged by readers as to whether they buy the book, by reviewers as to whether they approve of the book. Um, uh, that must be incredibly vulnerable in some ways, I would think. It is. It is. I have to say the wonderful thing about The Spies of Shilling Lane is it's just got the best reviews. You know, the New York Times loved it and NPR, you know, rave reviews. And that's, I, that is just an amazing feeling because, you know, if you're me, you kind of start off thinking, well, it's probably at best going to be mediocre, <laughs> you know. And, but it, it, it is, it, it's such an amazing feeling that you've, you, you've kind of, um, you've resonated you know, what, what you've written has, has resonated and also, you know, hopefully what I try to do is, is give it an enjoyable read that also resonates in a, a number of different levels at the same time. Do you read your reviews or do you have somebody read them for you and let you know? No, I, I, I read them, but they're quite often, they're forwarded to me by the um, publicist. And so you can read, you know, it, when you get an email and it says the first line. <laughs> right. And they'll say, wow, congratulations on this. Or they'll Reading say, right. <laughs> or there'll be more of a nuanced, well, there's a couple of good pull quotes we can get from this, which <laughs> basically means it's, mm, it's right. a little bit more, you know, nuanced. But, um, but uh, honestly, it's, it's, I'm, I've been blown over by the amount of, of, appreciation I've got for for the spies of Shelling Lane I mean that's really great because you do you do feel you know particularly at the when when it first goes to print I think I as an editor I'm never quite happy with the way it is because I could always edit something some more I really when do you stop when do you finally say to yourself okay I need to put this away and just submit it because if I don't do that it's going to be five more years and I'll be tinkering with the last paragraph in the fifth chapter for another five months. Does that happen to you? It, it doesn't happen like that. So with Chilry Ladies Choir, I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a publishing contract at all. What happened was that it won a competition. And the, the prize of the competition was to be published by a small printing press. And I suddenly thought, oh no, like I was hoping maybe to get something bigger. And then so I really quickly, and even though I was just about to embark on yet another round of edits, <laughs> I just quickly had to forget about that and just send it out to, to some agents. And, um, and luckily they, they picked it up and that was great. Um, and with the Spies of Shelling Lane, you've just got deadlines. So you just, there's nothing you can do. You have to meet the deadline, you pass it on, you're never, it, it, I don't know, as I say, if you're me, you always think, oh, I could really have given it an extra do you, do you bury the book, though, once you're finished with it? Or do you come back even now reading it and thinking, oh, I could have done this better, or I could have done this in a different way? Or uh, Because you're a former editor, are you constantly tinkering even after the book is published, thinking I could have done this in a different way? Or do you just say, okay, I've moved on from this book, and I'm moving on to the next book, and I, I'm putting this aside? I think that's a really interesting point. Um, so I try not to even look at it as much as I can, actually, I, because, I get it. because I know that I'll find things and it'll just make me No, cringe, I, I asked the know. question because um, all those years when I was on TV, I would do the show. Some people would sit there and watch it and rewatch it to see what they could do differently. And I would never look at my stuff again, which probably made me not as good as I could have been, but I just, that was it. It was over and you had to move on to the next 
TV show so I can empathize with the fact that that's it, you're kind of done because you can't, or else you'll drive yourself crazy, I assume. I think so, but I think talking of you, I I did a couple of um, TV, live TV um, things with this, uh, around D-Day, spies, women spies in D-Day in the last couple of months. And it is very interesting. I think you walk away from every time you're on TV thinking, knowing what you could have done better. Of course, (laughs) of course. But I assume writing is exactly (laughs) the same way where you think I could just do this in a different way. Um, writing to me is much more vulnerable because writing to me, you know, you, you're on TV and there's a certain way you're supposed to look and talk and, 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 and position yourself, but you're really pouring your heart and soul into creating a universe that's not a real universe, but you're trying to sell it. And, and to me, it's, it's really, it's like creating a child to some extent and putting him out there in the world and expecting people to either accept that person or, or reject that person based on what you've done as a mother. <laughs> to me, that's always been the way people, I, I would look at authors, and, and I think it takes so much courage to be able to do that. I'm not sure that most people would have the courage to do that. Um, yeah, I, I think when I was younger, I had more of a problem with this, like some of the several novels that I haven't finished. I think that was the problem I had with them. Um, I think there was... One in particular, I remember it, it being just incredibly unrealistic because I was swaying it to try to bias it so that people would see me in a different light. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And, um, and I realized that, and I think that was half the reason why it, it failed and I kind of decided to move on to the next project because I, be, I, I realized that that's what was happening and it wasn't making for... For, it wasn't going to make for good reading. I mean, you, you know, you, in a way, you do need to put it out there. But I think with age, I mean, this is it. I was, in that particular case, I would have been, what, in my mid-20s. And I think you are a little bit more self-conscious then. I mean, now I'm older and you realise that there's certain things that people have in common with each other. There's certain emotions, certain feelings, certain understandings of the world and, and I think it, it almost, things that bond us all together, and I think that gives you more, has given me more confidence about speaking out about those things. Before we get to our two truths and a lie, one other thing really, got, pretty much I could talk page by page with you about this book, but we do not have the time. But um, when, you, when you talked about uh, Mrs. Braithwaite being divorced, uh, I really thought one of the lines that really stuck to me and that resonates today is no one wants to be friends with a divorced woman. You see, just in in case his immorality was catching, I ask you, why would I suddenly lose all sense of propriety just because your father did? Um, I thought, and I immediately thought of Hillary Clinton with that, because just, just because, you know, the person you're with who may, you know, have cheated on you, it's somehow your... Have the, you have the scarlet letter too is somehow you're a cheater too and I just thought that was a very insightful kind of way how the community was looking at this character um, there's a story behind this my grandmother was actually divorced um, under much the same circumstances as Mrs. Braithwaite in the 40s in the um, it actually she was I think it was just after the war um, that she was divorced um, and her husband was a philanderer and he chose to divorce her and she'd done absolutely nothing wrong. And she was drummed out of the mother's union group that she belonged to um, because they didn't 
they didn't take divorced women, um, even though it wasn't her fault that she was divorced. And as a result of that, and it was quite interesting as a result of that, I think she was obviously really upset by that, but she was really upset by the divorce. She was very much unlike Mrs. Braithwaite. She was very much in love with her husband and just personally upset that her marriage had come to an end. And just at the time when she really needed the support of a women's group, women friends, they all deserted her, you know. And I I wanted to really highlight that was, you know, why should women be judging other women and right you know when at, at, right at the time at the, when they the should be supporting time. them that's right it's support your friends just that's right just yeah because, maybe know, because like, they think it's catching right they, it's catching they think it's yeah they catching. think they yeah yeah exactly but um there is a good end of the story to this which is that my my grandmother then went on to start um a local uh women's institute group and so she became the leader of her local group and she picked a group that would allow um divorced women and so as a divorced woman she and and it was it's kind of interesting because it's not something she would have done if she'd have just like stayed on in the mother's union group that's wonderful that's what a great story um is there a stranger time in britain aside from world war ii than today with what's going on I know. I, I think it's it, it's an extraordinary time um, with Brexit. I, I mean, I, Boris Johnson's about to become your prime minister. I know. <laughs> How is that I know. possible? I know. And, and Let's just remember who was prime minister during the period that you're writing about and think about the fact that the man moving into 10 Downing Street is going to be Boris Johnson, potentially. I know. <laughs> I know, exactly. So I think, I think half of the problem is there, there, is, there are certain problems within the parliamentary system that have allowed this to happen. Well, we don't have a parliamentary system and look who our president is. I don't know if it's the parliamentary system or it's the world we live in today. No, but I think it's different in that respect from over here. Because over here, um, I think a lot of people voted for Donald Trump. I I mean, you can't get around for whatever reason, for whatever reason they did vote for him, they voted for him. Whereas... Whereas I think if it went to the people in in the UK, I'm not sure whether he would actually get voted in. But it's actually just the Conservative Party that is actually voting, and um, and he's very powerful within that group. So um, so that that's why I, I kind of feel that the system is flawed. I feel that a lot of people feel that way in the UK as well. Um, that that it's 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 a bad situation that should never really have come into into place really so i don't know that we ever talked about this i actually worked um in the uk i worked in london for the labor party not during the crazy labor party stage it is today but um shortly after neil kinnock stepped down uh and it was a very different labor party back then um it was right before tony blair uh rebranded it as the new labor party but i feel that, that was in 1993 or so, so that was a long time ago, over 25 years ago, but I feel like it's a very different place today, not just the Labour Party, but, but Britain, than it was in the early 90s, or even the mid late 90s when I kept going back. I home. have to say that the whole situation over there is like the perfect storm, because you've got a, a Labour Party as well, an opposition oh, party that is not 
that it is not behind it, it, it they're not all on the same team and um and and i think i think it's incredibly difficult situation um uh you know jeremy corbyn was kind of voted in because everybody had a problem with everybody else so it was kind of like and he's taken over the party in a way the that least never, yeah. best the least worst person kind of thing as opposed to someone who really could do the best job it's it's just very different it's a very complicated situation but that whole situation has kind of aided and abetted the entire problem with getting pushing the brexit process through no question um yeah it, it's 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 a very complicated situation and yeah how long have you been in the States? How long have you lived here? Um, gosh, 14 years. Yeah, 14 years. And what brought you here? Um, so my husband is Irish, but he, he's been living here a very long time since he was at college. And he worked in London for a while, which is where we met. And then he moved back to the US and then we got married and, and I moved over. It's, it's been wonderful. I mean, yeah, it's been a great adventure. Well, it was an adventure at the beginning and now it's just home, you know. That's great. Um, you want to do truth, two truths and a lie? Yes, two truths and a lie uh, about the book or about your life. Really? Um, you tell us yeah. two things that are true and one thing that is not. We have to guess the thing Julie that is not. Oh, by the way, correctly. I, I, have, I, have a, I think I have a 100% yeah, record. Yeah, you have a 100%. I have a 0% record of guessing. Oh, my goodness. So I'd be a good spy. I can yeah. suss out when people are not telling me the truth. However, oh, wow. I know, but now I feel like I just bragged about something that's going to absolutely bite me. So let's see. Let's see if we can keep the street going with all our guests. Yes. Okay, so... Um, I'm going to tell you about my writing process. It's, it's, okay, it's something already... about my writing process. So I, um, at the end, when I actually finish writing a manuscript, um, there are, I'm going to give you three things that I do, but I only do two of these. Okay. okay. Right, so the first one is, is that evening I'll open a bottle of champagne that I'll share with my husband. The second one is that I do a little dance, maybe with a dog or any spare children who are hanging around. And the third one is that I instantly email it to my sister. Oh, crap. <laughs> I'm going, I'm trying to get a tell from your sister. but that's Yeah, your sister's happening. joining us here in the studio, by the way, which is the only reason. <laughs> that's not happening. Um, the dance. Because I would see an uninterested kid would be like, nah, not dancing. So I'll just say that. I would have said that too, but now I feel like I'm going to just say your sister, even though I still think it's the dance. It's the champagne. What? what? Oh my God. <laughs> you broke my streak. <laughs> my husband doesn't like champagne. What? He does. I Why know. are you married it's to somebody crazy. who doesn't like champagne? What? He doesn't like champagne. We have and to rethink so, his marriage. And, and, I, and it's kind of would be weird to like open a bottle of celebratory champagne and then drink it all yourself. I don't oh, know. you got to hang out with Emily and me. Yeah. We'd, have yeah. no We'd have no problem doing that all by ourselves. We came yeah. up with this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and we drink on it, but yes. Huh. You have a husband who doesn't like. Let's get back to the part where your husband doesn't like champagne. Does he like? Does he like any alcohol or just? He doesn't? Yeah, he does. You know what? He's a beer. He's he's essentially a kind of European beer kind of guy. Is he into yeah. Guinness? Um, he does. He does yeah. occasionally drink Guinness. Um, but it's more yeah, kind of Pilsner. Pilsner. <laughs> I think we finally found my kryptonite. British people. I can't tell when you people, I can't tell when you guys are lying. I can't tell the truth. I guess I'd be a horrible spy over there. Speaking of your book, um, 
Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. This was wonderful, and especially hearing about your writing process and hearing about um, ways that other people can, can take inspiration from that. It's incredibly, I still think it's one of the most courageous things you can do is to put all of yourself into the written word and put it out there for other people to judge, especially people who do not write themselves. I mean, I know you can't say this about your critics um, and about people who review books, but I always found it's interesting that they are not writers themselves but have the ability to make or break people who actually have the courage to put themselves out there. So thank you for doing that. Yeah. I think on behalf of all women, certainly on behalf of anybody who wants to become a writer and um, we look forward to reading much more about your books and about the period that you're writing about, which is a fantastic, I, and I fascinating to, period. And, and I have to say, Julie and I, you know, I'm like the millennial and Julie... Is much older. A, right? a tad bit. But it, it, your book appeals to everyone. So great, great book. And I suggest it to anyone. Yes. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having thank me on you. today. It's been a real pleasure. You're Come wonderful. back with the next book, please. Yeah. We'd love to. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. That was a great interview. Um, she was so lovely, and she had her sister here as well, um, who was so nice as well, um, who lives in Scotland. Jennifer lives in D.C., she said, but is British, obviously. And it was so nice to talk about a subject that I think we all love, um, World War II. Speaking of World War II, I actually, in commemoration of the 75th anniversary of D-Day, I am going to be in Normandy. Um, in a few months going to Omaha Beach. And so I've been reading up a lot about um, World War II, again, just just in advance of, of my trip. And so I am very, very excited to have talked to her about this book. And we both, Emily and I, both highly recommend it. Go out and buy it, The Spies of Schilling Lane by Jennifer Ryan. It's yeah. out. It's great. It's a good beach read. And perhaps, enjoy. Perhaps drink a gin and tonic with it as well. Yes, if people who noticed that I was choking during that interview, that is because I had an unfortunate incident with gin in my college days. And so sometimes trying to get gin down does not great, you know, release good memories and therefore good breathing techniques. Well, speaking of negative things, what are, are you salty about this week, Julie? Oh, well, in the midst of, as I said, my celebrating this good news about Bridgegate, I happened to be at the gym and um, I was running on the treadmill, which Emily, you are a big runner and I run and I hate every single second of it. That's not what's making me salty, but I committed that I was going to do 5k um, in September. So now I've got to get in shape. I will be getting some live sound from that 5k and we will be putting it on this podcast. Yes. It's called the same choking sound you heard when I (laughs) drank gin, but, um, but if I survive this 5k anyway, so when I'm at the gym and I'm hating the treadmill, and hating everything about it, which is not what's making me salty. There I was looking at the TV. And as I look up, I see Donald John Trump sitting next to Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. And somebody says, hey, Mr. President, will you tell um, the Russian president not to interfere in our elections? And Trump kind of smirks. He's like, yeah, I don't interfere in our elections. And Trump's and Putin's like, yeah, yeah, I got it. Like, it's not a goddamn joke. This isn't a bit. It's not a joke. The guy interfered in our elections. There is no disputing that. Every single agency, every single one, from our intelligence agencies, everybody has agreed that the Russians interfere in our elections. And here is Donald Trump joking about it. Like it's some, like they're at a keg party. And Putin is looking at this guy, and I know what he's thinking. He's thinking the big Russian phrase, useful idiot. Um, 
But when he jokes about it, all he's basically doing is giving him permission to interfere again. Not that he needs permission, he's doing it. I mean, it's fairly obvious that they're continuing to do it. Um, but And then they start joking about fake news, and, and Putin says, yeah, we have fake news in our country too. And I'm thinking, yeah, you've got fake news in your country. The fake news in your country is the one that you propagate, you dope. It's such BS because it's like when my brother, he hides behind the door and always scares me. And I'm like, Deej, don't scare me. And he then the next day does it. Exactly what this exchange between Trump and Biden or <sighs> Trump and Putin was like. I mean, like at some point, are you going to just realize what people who are Trump supporters, at which point do you realize that this is not the way for a president to behave against an adversary? And for everybody who keeps saying, oh, well, you know, we have to be nice to him. What are we going to do? Start World War III? There's a big difference between starting World War III and being nice to him. Same thing with Kim Jong-un. The president of the United States sets foot in North Korea, the first one in history to set foot in North Korea. And then again, as I'm on the treadmill watching some, I don't know, whatever, I think it was CNN. At least you didn't fall because there are a couple moments where I could see you lose your. And be no, like, what the heck? no, no, no. I didn't. I well, I wanted to fall for other reasons other than the fact that I can't run. But I, I, I'm, I and then same thing. Like we're watching Kim Jong Un, and the president, and he rewards Kim Jong Un by setting foot in North Korea with no preconditions attached. And then I see this Chiron saying, "United States might now accept North Korea as a nuclear power as long as they don't." I don't, I don't know, do what? What else they do? Really? Really? We're accepting them as, 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 as a nuclear power? And then on top of that, you've got Tucker Carlson, my old friend Tucker, who's clearly gone off the deep end, saying, well, you know, what do you expect? Every country, you know, every ruler of every country is a killer, and it's not like our allies aren't killers, and every country's a killer. This is a great equivalency. I, I mean, this it. guy is the closest thing to... to Joseph Stalin that exists in the modern world. He literally sicks dogs on his enemies and tears them apart. He poisons his, he hacks his brother's or uncle to death. He sets up death camps. I mean, half the country is in a death camp. They don't have food. You don't equivalent, I mean, it's like, you don't, there's no equivalent between him and anybody else. I don't know that there's anybody else, even MBS, even Saudi Arabia, as atrocious as they are, they do not treat their people the way Kim Jong-un treats his. And, I mean, talk about Neville Chamberlain, peace in our time. By allowing, by just saying to North Korea, okay, go ahead, we don't mind if you're a nuclear power, fine, we'll take it. It's the Sudetenland. You just gave him the Sudetenland. Where, do you think he's going to stop? No, like, he's, he's doing the same thing, like, with with Putin doing the, yeah, yeah, no, I'll, I won't, I won't launch anything. Shut up. No, yes, he's doing stuff. And then they I, send John Bolton to Ulan Batara, Mongolia, while he goes to North Korea, which I love, which means to me, which, by the way, underscores my thesis. Anybody who listens, who works for Fox News, who's thinking about going to the administration, you are not worth anything to this president once you leave Fox News. John Bolton was his man while he was there. The minute he left and went to the administration, gone. Not worth it anymore because he's not selling the propaganda the way Trump wants him to. So anybody at Fox News considering going on the inside, you're kind of not worth it to him once you go on the inside. You've got more power on air than you do in the White House. And John Bolton, I predict, will be out of there in the next six months to a year, if not sooner, because guess who Trump's getting foreign policy advice from? Tucker. Right. I mean, they're on the phone all the time. And t- 
Tucker apparently is the one that talked him out of striking Iran, which, by the way, thank you, Tucker. That was a smart thing to do. But the bottom line is Tucker and John Bolton have very, 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 very different worldviews about intervention. Um, in fact, Tucker, in many cases, I think, is, is right, and, and John Bolton is not. Um, Kim Jong-un being a very, very, very big exception to that. But nevertheless, Tucker is more important to... Um, this president, I think, than John Bolton is because Tucker talks to three million people a night and John Bolton doesn't anymore. And so that's all that Trump cares about. He cares about people propagating his worldview to his oh. base because all he cares about is the base. Well, speaking of worldview, Julie, uh, I'm salty about President's, President Trump's nativist reaction to the heartbreaking photo of the father and daughter mm. lying dead on the banks of the Rio Grande River. They drowned after an attempt to cross onto American soil and seek asylum. And when Trump was asked by reporters, he appeared to blame current immigration laws and Democrats' refusal to change them for the drowning death. Nope. Um, that, it made my stomach churn. It, having no empathy for a picture of a dead father and daughter is absolutely disgusting. I, you know, I got to tell you, I, I hate this guy. It's just... If there's anything to be done incorrectly, he does it. Right. Um, think about why these people, and, and people think they're fleeing for economic reasons. No, they're not. They're fleeing because some of these men are told that if you don't join this gang and start killing people, we're going to kill you and your entire family. So you've got one of two choices. You could either become a trained killer like them, or you can take your family and run to save their lives. And that's why these people are fleeing. And maybe, potentially, one of the things we need to do is, and I'm not huge on the Monroe Doctrine or the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, which basically means that we have power over the Western Hemisphere, but it sounds to me like we need to get those countries in line um, and make sure that people there don't have to live the way they live. And therefore, maybe they won't be wanting to come here and flee here. And again, I keep saying this. I don't want to keep bringing my own experience up. But I don't think people understand how hard it is to live, leave everything you've known in life, right. your family, generations of your roots, your native country, your native language, to come to walk, I don't know how many thousands of miles, to be broke, to deal with coyotes, who you may not know whether they're going to rape your daughter or kill you. I mean, risking everything. The level of desperation that that takes, trust me, I know it. My parents went through it, and we had a guarantee that we would essentially come here when we left. These people don't. And uh, people don't do that unless they're desperate and fleeing for their lives. And to blame this father and this daughter for, for drowning in the Rio Grande, I mean... Uh, I wish, the, I wish the president would at least express some empathy. Right. Have, have there just there was few, no empathy when no that empathy. picture came up. None. And it was, it really, it, it made my stomach just go none, over nuts. None, But you know what? I'm glad Ivanka Trump was, you know, sitting at the head table with Christine Lagarde, the oh. head of the IMF, and Theresa May, the prime minister of England, of Great Britain, excuse me, and Emmanuel Macron and all these other people in the G20. Because Ivanka belonged there. You know, she ran a very successful shoe company. So why wouldn't she be there? Did you see that shade that Christine Lagarde gave oh her? Oh my gosh. That was good. It. That was great shade. Just, um, you know, facts. Yes. And to anybody who's going to be tweeting me and Emily that we're just jealous of Ivanka because she's so beautiful and perfect, not really. You know, my dad's an engineer. 
And I can guarantee you I wouldn't be sitting in any meetings with him because I don't know the first thing about engineering. Just because I'm related to him doesn't mean that I should be <laughs> sitting next to him telling people how to build stuff. Right. Yeah, my dad's a lawyer. Maybe I should be nominated for the Supreme Court. Maybe you should. You maybe, you, maybe you should go to settlement conferences with your dad and, and give your opinion on how you think those, those things should be settled under title, whatever, Florida state law. Exactly. Um, so, Julie, happy 4th of July. Happy 4th of July, everybody. Uh, and we look forward to next time.